can this just be our podcast this month? Like, <laughs> just yeah. us talking and hanging out. <laughs> yeah. Like, we could just call it an inside peek at the talking underwater host life or something. I don't know. That sounds weird now. That <laughs> Welcome to Talking Underwater. One water. One podcast. I'm Katie Jong, Managing Editor of Stormwater Solutions. I'm Lauren Del Cello, Managing Editor for Water Quality Products. And I'm Bob Crossan, Senior Managing Editor of Water Waste Digest. In this month's episode of Talking Underwater, we'll discuss recent updates to lead and copper rule for the first time in 30 years and potential impacts on the water industry at large. We'll also unpack the recent Chesapeake Bay Foundation's assessment of the state of the bay, which declined slightly from 2018. Finally, our interview this month is with Dorothy Champrodier, Principal for Iman Advisors. I talked with Dorothy about trends in water investment, including an increased interest in sustainable investing. She explains the categories in sustainable investing, which have the greatest growth, and how water businesses can optimize their business models to benefit from sustainable investing. She also shared with me her water wish list for 2021 and beyond, which I hope you'll find intriguing. Now to a little bit of news. Yeah, so the first news item we have is about the lead and copper rule revision. It was signed by EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler on December 22, 2020. This lead and copper rule revision update marks the first update in 30 years since the rule was created in 1991. There are three key points that we wanted to highlight before going a little more deeply into our discussion about it, starting with the first, which is requiring utilities to alert customers of high lead concentrations within 24 hours of detection rather than 30 days. The second is that utilities will be required for the first time to test for lead in the water supplies of schools and childcare centers and to replace their lead pipe systems anytime their customers replace the lead pipes they own in their homes and businesses. And lastly, in communities with high lead levels in their water, utilities will have to replace a minimum of 3% of their water lines from lead annually, down from a requirement of 7%. This also closes loopholes that allowed for partial line replacement or other limited efforts, according to the Wall Street Journal. So those are obviously just three key points from a pretty sweeping update. There's a lot to unpack in there, and I do encourage listeners to look into it for themselves to understand how that may impact you or your business. Um, also wanted to bring in a couple other perspectives just so we can so we can talk about this update a little bit more holistically. Um, so I wanted to share a little bit of controversy perspective that I saw as well as how some associations may be responding to it currently. Um, so there was some... There was one Flint pediatrician named Monahanna Atish. She's actually one of the pediatricians who helped identify the contaminated water issue in Flint. And she said back in February to the House when this was all still pending that the proposed changes are, quote, a small step in the right direction. But she said they, quote, don't reflect the science of lead exposure, which tells us there is no safe level. I thought this is very interesting since the federal action level is 15 ppb and the federal MCLG is zero. This is according to the EPA's website today. Uh, and a lot of states have made their own regulations in response to that as well. So thought that was an interesting perspective to share. The other would be the Natural Resources Defense Council, which is an environmental group. Uh, 
their senior strategic director for health, Eric Olson. Uh, he spoke out about the rule as well and felt that it was not sufficient enough. He said, quote, EPA's rule condemns millions of Americans to drink lead contaminated water for a generation. I believe he's referring to there the uh, the minimum replacement of 3% of water service lines. So a couple of other perspectives, and I also wanted to ask Bob and Katie what they've seen from the industry. If you've seen any response thus far, what can we be expecting in terms of changes that we'll have to face? Yeah, um, I'll go first. For most of what I have seen from associations has been about trying to relay this information to their membership and ensure that they know what they are going to be required to do and how they can they should go about doing that, what resources are available for this, particularly in regards to replacing lead service lines. That's going to require, first of all, inventory of water lines if a, if a system has not already done so. And then it will also require the Fund, funding and financing to replace those lines over time. I think that um, the 3% is not too bad. That is a very small percentage number, so I understand where Eric Olson is coming from. But I also think that making it higher would place a tremendous burden on utilities to try and solve these problems when they have so many other problems they're trying to do, especially after this pandemic, which has resulted in millions of dollars in lost revenue from water rates because of mandatory shutoff initiatives. So there has to be some give and take in regards to this. I understand the urgency of this matter as well, but it does create a very complicated mm -hmm. A very, a very complicated argument of how do we go about doing this and maintaining that our systems are, are good while also fulfilling other requirements that we have to do, especially with new things coming down with PFAS and other regulated contaminants. Yeah. So it's super, super complicated, and it will require a lot of investment, I think, from both federal and state resources to make sure that these things can be met. Because without those resources, I'm not quite sure how utilities are going to manage it. Yeah, and I don't have too much to add from the stormwater side. I think from what I've seen, many associations are just, you know, kind of reviewing this more and seeing how it would impact them. But I share similar sentiments to what Bob said, and I think that, you know, upcoming this year with a new administration, there will be a lot of regulatory changes probably in the future. So it'll be interesting to see how utilities are factored into those new regulations coming out. Yeah, I brought in those other perspectives because I want to make sure that we're having a conversation not just about our perspective and providing some balanced coverage and looking at different sides of this issue because, as you said, Bob, it's extremely complex. I mean, those were only three points of the changes that we touched on, but from what I can tell, it has a, an emphasis on communication and customer transparency, which is something that perhaps has been lacking and will be vital. Uh, for my audience, I think one of the most important things is going to be that it, for the first time, requires testing for childcare and schools. Uh, that's something that's been state-by-state state regulated before, and it's been an issue. Uh, so I'm excited about that. I'm optimistic, and I'm looking forward to seeing how the industry responds to these changes. Yeah, the the issue with the schools and the daycare centers is a very interesting one as well. 
because especially for large utilities, this is going to require, uh, similarly to getting the lead service line inventory, this will require inventorying every daycare center in the city, yeah. every school in the city. The school systems should be, that should be easy enough, I think, to gather that information since it's all public record and it's part of the government that is running the utility as well. But when it comes to daycare centers, that's going to require a lot of coordination between DHS and those utilities to determine where all of them are located. Then to get people out there to test the water directly, it's a massive undertaking, yeah. I think. So that's, again, adding another burden on them. I think that all of this stuff is highly important, but we have to recognize just how much of a burden this stuff is going to place on these utilities and where are they going to get the money and the funding to make sure that they can comply with it. Um, we could certainly talk circles around these issues, which are very complex, but I do hope that listeners and um, our audience reaches out to us with their thoughts and their perspectives on how you see these changes panning out, how you feel they may impact you, what sorts of continued conversation you'd like to have around that, and we'd love to engage with you and hope you reach out. But for now, I think it's time to move on. Yeah, sounds good. So I had a piece of news to share today. Uh, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation released its 2020 score for the state of the Bay. The state of the Bay remained at a D plus, but declined by one point compared to 2018. A press release from the Chesapeake Bay Foundation said that that one-point decline is mostly due to ineffective management of the Bay's striped bass population as opposed to water quality concerns. These measurements are part of the Chesapeake Clean Water Blueprint, and the goal of that is to implement this blueprint by 2025 and reach a target score of 40. With that one-point decline from 2018, the score is currently at a 32. Um, for those unfamiliar, the blueprint aims to ensure pollution reductions in Chesapeake Bay that will lead to fishable and swimmable waters promised by the Clean Water Act of 1972. So in this blueprint, there are 13 indicators being monitored as part of this effort, and most of the water quality measures are showing improvements, including nitrogen and phosphorus pollution. Um, the progress so far has shown that the improvements in those pollution has largely been helped by pollution reductions at wastewater treatment plants. And according to the press release, the level of dissolved oxygen in the water and water clarity has also improved. Um, so, Lauren and Bob, I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on this, Bob, especially from, you know, the wastewater side with the pollution reduction. So, Katie, I have um, a lot of questions for you on this from what you've seen. But so the score is currently at 32. I'm wondering if you know just off the top of your head, maybe how much has improved over time since they started this blueprint? Because I know the Chesapeake Bay has not always been in the most wonderful shape. Yeah, so I don't know about since the beginning, but I have done some research on the Chesapeake Bay Foundation's website, and they have, you know, shown the difference in the scores from 2018 to 2020 because they do this in kind of two-year increments. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the pollution indicators, nitrogen, in 20, 2020 was a 17F, and that's up five points in 2018. Phosphorus in 2020 was a 27D, and that's up eight points from 2018. Dissolved oxygen went up two points, and water clarity went up one point. Yeah, I'd love to know more about what they're working on for these improvements. I know you mentioned that wastewater is a big part of that, which obviously shows the intersections of the water cycle and how 
stormwater and wastewater can impact each other long term, but I'm, I'm sure there's quite a variety of factors. I'm also interested in how some of these things play out in other water bodies beyond our, our East Coast ones. Yeah, I know we've run articles in Water and Waste Digest about the Chesapeake Bay and the nitrogen and nutrient loading that occurs there and how they're trying to address that. We've had, I think, about maybe two years ago, we had an article specifically dedicated to uh, changing some of the stuff at a wastewater plant and improving its discharge so that it would have less of an impact. And it sounds like, based on what you were saying, that like I said, it's it's more about the ineffective management of striped bass in the population as opposed to the water quality concerns. So it sounds to me like the discharge from the wastewater facilities and whatnot and the efforts toward water quality improvements are making a positive improvement. It's more about the environmental aspects that need to be addressed in addition to that, essentially. Yeah, and I mean, I have found many links on the Chesapeake Bay Foundation's website about this, and we could probably talk for a whole episode about it. There's so much to it, but there are, you know, 13 indicators that they're monitoring, and of course, water quality was, we mentioned four of those, so there's, you know, nine other indicators that they're monitoring to kind of get this blueprint to its goal by 2025. Interesting. Sounds like water quality is only one piece of the puzzle, which certainly is something we chat about. Yeah. <laughs> All right, now let's move into our interview for this episode today. It is with Dorothea Chambradier. She's the principal for Edmon Advisors. I spoke with her on trends in sustainable investing, and I hope you enjoy. So without further ado, here is that interview for you. Welcome to Talking Underwater, One Water, One Podcast. I'm Lauren Delcello. I'm the managing editor for WQP. And I am joined today by Dorothy Chambrodier, principal for Edmond Advisors. Today's discussion is going to cover all about trends in funding issues for sustainable investing. So, first of all, thank you so much for joining me today, Dorothy. It's wonderful to meet you. Thank you very much for inviting me, Lauren. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. I think we're going to have a lot of fun chatting today, but first I'd love just a little bit of background on you, yourself. You know, Have you always focused on the water sector, and what do you find intriguing about this work? Yeah, sure. I actually am an engineer in environmental sciences, and I worked over the past 12 years half in the water industry and half on improving public policies and customer care. And more specifically, I joined Aman Advisors uh, six years ago. Aman Advisors is actually a leading global advisory firm focused on the water industry. Uh, and we provide an holistic support to our clients uh, in whatever they need, you know, with more than 100 projects per year. And I'm really passionate about the water industry. You know, I believe this industry is very unique. Um, pure industries have a substantial impact uh, on sustainability as the water industry has, right? And to be honest, I really love the people in this industry, you know, their dedication, their humanity, and the fact that they really need to think global and act local. Yeah, yeah. I understand completely. I mean, it sounds like your background in the environmental science sector has really influenced that passion for the sustainable element, but I absolutely hear you that the people in the industry really make it a valuable place to be and um, on the forefront of change, certainly. Absolutely. 
Right, so let's dig in a little bit to the meat of today's discussion all about sustainable investing. So obviously the global and national economic landscape is constantly in flux right now depending on current events. But regardless, water is a constant need. So from your perspective, have you seen an increased interest in sustainable investing and what sort of factors might you attribute this to if so? Yep, so actually sustainable investing covers a broad category of investments. Um, that seek more than, you know, not only a financial return, but also a positive impact on both the society and the environment. And you do have several players that are active in sustainable investing. You know, you have first the asset managers, um, the traditional, you know, uh, BlackRock, Goldman Sachs, um, but there's also new players, um, impact investing funds that are growing very fast. And then you have also um, development banks like the World Bank, the European Investment Bank, and they, um, you know, they are, the rest is being split between the banks, the pension funds, and the foundations. Now to answer your questions. Yes, absolutely, tremendous interest. Um, globally, the latest available figures show that sustainable investing assets are growing fast. Um, they reach more than $30 trillion at the start of 2018 and they have grown by 34%. And Europe and the US are leading the way. Among that, water, sanitation, and hygiene is one of the fastest growing sector of impact investing. And just looking at the latest figure on sustainable bonds, um, they, they achieved record uh, amounts this year of around uh, $288 billion um, for the first nine months of 2020, which is a record. So new figures are expected to be published in 2021, and I can bet with you that it will show an acceleration. Uh, now to come back to your questions on what factors explain this tremendous growth, um, there are several factors. Um, the, the main drivers are stakeholder demands, financial returns, regulation as well, and the COVID-19 situation. So first, uh, more than 2,600 investors, including most top investors, they have signed something called the UN Principle for Responsible Investment. And so they commit to have more than half of their assets under management, uh, you know, meeting the criteria of sustainability by 2021, so tomorrow. And so now more than 65% of assets, assets owners are shifting towards more sustainable investing, uh, which creates um, uh, uh, an increased pressure on uh, uh, the companies they are financing. Then the stakeholder demands, um, you know, more and more people want their money to be useful, to have a positive impact on the society or on the environment. And from the investor standpoint, money is cheap and growth opportunities are scarce. So it's somehow a way to make accept lower interest rates if we contribute to a greater good. And third, regulation. Uh, European regulation, uh, you may know uh, about it, is becoming also much more stringent uh, with first uh, non-financial reporting directive for companies that are above 500 employees and also for investors sustainability-related disclosure regulation. And, uh, um, you know, uh, finally, the European Green Deal is also to be released um, beginning of 2021. And it sets the objective for Europe 
to become carbon neutral by 2050. So a lot of pressure. Um, I also mentioned the COVID-19. Um, it has been, you know, accelerated, uh, accelerating the issuance of sustainable bonds in 2020, especially social bonds. So in a word, really, sustainable investing is a major trend. The water industry should seize to finance infrastructure and business model adaptation um, required, we will require by climate change and population growth, according to me. So there is so much to unpack there. Um, first of all, I am glad you brought some figures and statistics because that really kind of puts it in scope. It kind of shows like the the more holistic perspective, so to say, because I did anticipate you saying that there had been an increased interest in sustainable investing, but I'm a little shocked and excited by exactly how much. That's a lot more than I expected to be sure. Mm -hmm. um, and on factors, you might say uh, just need base. And I found that it, it's, it goes way deeper than that. And I'm especially interested by, I'll call it maybe a little bit like philanthropic base, that desire for change and to be a part of something with their, yeah. um, with their investment. So I thought that was very interesting. Thank you. Um, can we go maybe a little more holistic as well in terms of what are various categories in sustainable investing? It sounds like uh, it's, it's not just straightforward. So what might be the most prevalent and what have you seen the greatest growth in that area as well? Yeah. Um, so you, you, you're, you're totally true, uh, Lauren. Um, so on, on sustainable investing, it covers really a broad category of investments, you know, between traditional investments and philanthropy. Uh, so you're not focusing only on financial return, but also on having a positive impact. Um, you do have, you know, looking at the different players, you have the asset managers I was mentioning. They represent a half of the total assets uh, that is managed under uh, sustainable investing. And you also have um, so the development banks, one third and the rest. And within asset management, the fastest growing is really about what we call impact management. Uh, and this impact management funds, uh, they are really the new guys uh, around the corner. Um, they are growing fast, quite small. For example, one of the largest as, as $5 billion under management, and it's very different size compared, you know, like to a Goldman Sachs that has uh, uh, much more uh, uh, assets under under management, like seven trillion, and they, and they committed to have half of it uh, under ESG uh, an ESG mandate. Um, looking at the type, then to answer your question, looking at a different type as well of. Uh, financial um, tools that are financing uh, sustainability. Um, last year, the fastest growing was what we call green bonds. Uh, and uh, this year, uh, one of the fastest growing is called social bonds as well. So I hope that's answered your question. Yeah, it does. Thank you. So talking specifically about water businesses as well, which are a big part of our audience ship, is how can water businesses optimize their business models to benefit from sustainable investing? Do you have any tips or guidance? It sounds like this is a really rapidly growing trend that now is the time to get in on the ground floor. Correct, correct. Um, there, there are several ways for them to uh, be able to, to face this opportunity. Uh, so, first of all, um, 
sustainability is still a strong business differentiator. Um, we conducted, you know, at Amman Advisors, um, uh, a research to see on public companies how they were communicating on sustainability goals. And, and we realized that only one third of mid-cap water companies communicate on sustainability goals with a quantified uh, objective. And, and, you know, have a CSR report uh, dedicated to sustainability. And that's really going to drive performance uh, because more and more investors are looking at that as part of their decision-making process. So water companies will have to develop their extra financial reporting on sustainability to access to more capital and clearly state their position uh, related to the sustainable development goals. Uh, and that will help them to benefit you know, from cheaper capital because several studies are showing that if you uh, have a good uh, sustainability strategy, you're more likely to have long-term performance and, and better uh, stock prices as well. So that's for the, the valuation. You also have uh, typically on your offering, um, they should develop new offering to their uh, industrial and municipal clients to enhance their indirect impact because customers are valuing now and are, uh, and are willing to pay more uh, for uh, the same product, but a better product regarding to impact uh, on the whole value chain. And so that means, for example, developing, you know, um, uh, less expensive equipment or easy, easier to maintain, more robust, um, to have, uh, you know, a circular economy, to use the circular economy principle to work alongside the value chain, uh, featuring new sales channels, um, so whatever, and I'm sure the water industry will be in, uh, inventive on that. And um, lastly, I think they should, we should also work with you know, more other partners and associations on this topic uh, to help and benefit from you know, or knowledge and or, uh, and or understanding of the situation and more actively promote the, the unique contribution the water industry has on sustainability. I'm definitely hearing you say that there's kind of a communication gap so to say, uh, the water industry is doing a lot of great work in the areas of sustainability, but I correct me if I'm wrong, but I am hearing you say that working to make that more transparent would be in our favor. Correct. Absolutely correct. We, we, we believe we are part of sustainability. You know, we, we are managing water, uh, but, but the world has to recognize that and to understand, especially how this is linked with, that you know the, the 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 global trends and changes and impacts which are uh, climate change. So we yeah. think about energy, but we should think also about water. Uh, we think about growth population. Um, so how how water is part of that? So we have an, an enormous opportunity uh, to actually better to step up really and to better promote or or impact um, and and benefit from these trends. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can definitely hear you have some passion for the two. I mean, it is an enormous opportunity. You're absolutely right. So to wrap up our discussion today, I want to ask you a little bit about 2021. Do you have any hopes for the water industry moving forward or anything you really want to stress to listeners before we wrap up our chat today? Yes, thank you very much, Lauren. Uh, first, I wish uh, all our listeners uh, uh, health for 2021, as you can imagine. Uh, and, uh, and on a more broader level, probably for the industry, 
uh, you know, as governments really deba debate recovery strategy, I think water should be a bigger part of the conversation. You know, water can serve as a lever to achieve greater economic equity and access, you know, environmental resilience, and also technological innovation, among other benefits. So I, I do believe, and I hope 2021 is the time to elevate water as a core issue to drive a lasting recovery. Yeah. Absolutely wonderful to end on. Couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for your time today, Dorothea. It's been very wonderful to speak with you and, and learn more from your experience. Do appreciate it. Same. I really enjoyed, too, the conversation. Thank you, Lauren. Hey, thanks so much for that interview, Dorothy. It really was a pleasure to chat with you and learn more about your perspective, looking globally, not just nationally, as we tend to do sometimes on this podcast. So I did really appreciate that. A couple of things that you said that really stood out to me that I'd like to stress for listeners is that water and sanitation is one of the fastest growing sectors in sustainable investing. I know you brought some figures and statistics to back that up. So really reaffirm for me the, the excitement about being in this sector. It's very, it's very intriguing. And, and you said some of the key factors behind this trend is regulations, financial return, and COVID-19 as contributing factors. Probably the most interesting takeaway for me was when you spoke about the different kinds of sustainable investing and what that looks like. And how a lot of it has to do with investors who want to drive impact who want to drive change, not just on financial return alone, which makes it a very intriguing asset to be in. So, again, I do thank you for your time. Appreciate it very much and hope the listeners enjoyed. So now let's just move on to a little bit of housekeeping as we wrap up today's episode um, from WQP. The one thing I want to direct listeners' attention to is we also have a WQP uh, video series is focused for the residential and commercial water treatment industry. And if you're in that sector and curious, I'd love to have you check it out. You can find it at bit.ly slash WQP dash checking dash in. And similarly, similarly for Water and Waste Digest, we have a weekly video series that we are doing throughout all of 2021. In January, I'm focusing primarily on regulations and legislation. You can find all that information at bit.ly slash WWD Weekly Digest. And additionally, we are, have opened our Young Professionals nominations for 2021. You can visit bit.ly slash WWD Young Pros nomination to go to the form and nominate a young professional today, as long as they're 40 and under, and they have shown some tremendous efforts in the industry. We really look for people who have done a lot of volunteer work, worked with associations, have really elevated the water industry outside of just their normal working hours. So definitely go and nominate some awesome young professionals. They will be featured in the May issue of Water and Waste Digest. And last but not least, some exciting news. Uh, the Scranton Communications Water Group, which includes Water and Waste Digest and Stormwater Solutions, is bringing a water pavilion to the Utility Expo September 28th to 30th at the Kentucky Exposition Center in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, this is a new partnership, and you can look out for a call for abstract soon, so we hope you submit and prevent, present at some of our educational sessions. With that, that ends our episode, so don't forget to like, subscribe, share on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, and really anywhere you can get podcasts. 
You can reach us at talkingunderwater at sgcmail.com to share your thoughts. And don't forget to give us a follow on Twitter at TUW Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everyone. Happy New Year. Thank you.